1: Your next game is going to be drunkenly boisterous, and here's why. In this episode, we find some answers to how do we build a tavern with some memorability? And what elements are essential to a tavern so you can make the most of your efforts? And what great content can you get and expect from Escape Plan Games for your table? Welcome to the Hook and Chance Podcast. I'm Jordan. And I'm his brother, Travis. Today, we're talking about taverns. The classic starting place of every game that's ever been in Dungeons and Dragons. Well, I mean, this is a time-honored
2: tradition. You start in a tavern. Like, that's how every
1: campaign of epic proportions starts off, in a humble tavern. And you know, it's okay to not start in a tavern. And I know there's a lot of folks out there that would heavily discourage starting in a tavern. But taverns are the problem. Taverns are wonderful places.
2: Taverns are as good a place as any, if not one of the best places,
1: when they're done right. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, there's a good reason that they're the most important place. They're the central hub for food, drink, rest, friends, information, (laughs) intrigue, bar brawls, characters. There's so
2: much to start with in a tavern because I, I think that's why. Like, that's why we use them. Because anything can happen there. Anything that happens within a good tavern is kind of plausible. Somebody comes in with their their bleeding profusely and they're covered in mud and they go, ah, there's a this down the road. Like that's entirely plausible. Yeah. A lich walking in and just being like, get me a
1: beer. (laughs) That's
2: plausible. (laughs)
1: Sure. That being said, all of those potential possibilities Is a bit to plan. Like you gotta sit down for a while if you're gonna plan out everything that could happen in a tavern. You gotta have a real good think because
2: the trap that I always fall into is that you know I'll I'll start planning and I'll be like, yeah, sure, it doesn't really matter. Um, they're gonna do a tavern and there's gonna be some people there, but ultimately I'm trying to get them to go over here, and so I don't end up putting in all of the work that I probably should. Yeah. And then one of the players says, "Like, I'll have a drink. What do you have on tap?" Uh, f- uh, donkey's piss. It's the. It sounds bad, but it's real good. It's the oh. local swell. Oh.
1: My my name is Fartender the bartender. <laughs> <laughs> You know that that's going to incept Fartender the
2: bartender
1: in (laughs) other games. What have you wrought upon the world? I change it to Farblender the bartender. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Yes, that's the point, Travis.
2: I mean, even seasoned DMs have learned this. And then I went the hard other direction where I said, okay, well, I'm going to have a whole binder full of tavern games and all kinds of stuff so that I never, ever have to feel that pain again. And now I've over-prepared. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. So what's the middle ground? How do we hit the middle ground in creating a good tavern? What should I put energies into so that I know that they won't go to waste? And what can I do to just get there faster? And what can I
1: skip? Like, you know, planning the incoming shipments of salts and spices and how much flour we're going to need. Oh, to- my goodness. <laughs>
2: There is some troubling misinformation floating out there on the internet when we were doing research for this episode. Uh, you know there's there's blogs out there that talk about potentially trying to figure out and calculate how many spices a bar might need in its inventory in order to create a rich and and fulfilling and believable bar. And let me tell you
1: that is not the spice of a tavern. it's literal
2: spice. <laughs> When I think about all of the things that I could put my energies towards, uh, that is probably not one of them, but what is. And in order for us to really, you know, skip all of the the thoughts and all of the trial and error that it would typically take us to get to this place of really thoroughly understanding what to put our energies towards to make a kick-ass tavern, we just turn to our guest today, Mike Pisani and Colin Heffernan.
1: And about two years ago, they started working on their vision of a vibrant, fun, and dangerous circus-themed tavern. It launched on
2: Kickstarter, and it nearly tripled its budget, and it was funded within a day. And that was back in May of 2021. And the good news is, you don't have to wait for this thing. It's out, or it's at least in the uh, pre-order stage. So it's coming out, very soon and you get to see all of the incredible work that they've done. This is one of Jordan and I's favorite supplements that we've had the honor to to dive into deeply Uh, and we don't do that very often but boy this one really knocked our socks off. Welcome Mike and Colin. Thanks for joining us today.
1: Yeah thank you for having us. So we're going to talk about your supplement, Tavern Tales, at the end of this episode. But can you start off by just telling us why you made it in the first place? What kind of inspired it? Uh,
0: Yeah, I think that we kind of started Tavern Tales as this idea of a way to um, help DMs kind of have a supplement that they can use when they don't have enough time to expand their own personal world. We wanted to kind of create a module that you could just kind of drop in anywhere return to time and again that would buy you a little bit of time to do whatever it is you like if you're trying to expand your own personal world or you just need a few extra weeks to write something
3: yeah um like mike said there's nothing kills a campaign faster than oh sorry guys uh you know we got to do next week instead you know and then next week goes by real quick right so Tavern Tales is cool because you can, like Mike said, just just drop it in. It, it buys you that time if you have a crazy week at work, whatever. Hey, let's still push through. You know, maybe a shorter session this weekend. But I got this new thing I want to, you know, play with you guys. Um, so yeah, that was the idea. And, and to put out a product uh, that was, I guess, in our minds, a little more manageable than something we had been working on, which is a full blown RPG. And we wanted our freshman product to be. Something that we could, you know, actually manage, you know, the five E supplement space is huge, but we still think that Tavern Tales is is something unique in that space.
2: Hundred percent agree with that because what I love about Tavern Tales specifically is just, you know, you're you're you've created a tavern that's a linchpin to adventure, and that's what taverns are supposed to be. You've got a a, a tavern and an anthology, and they're just kind of mashed into one, but it feels really cohesive. It feels like something that we can just drop in the, into the world, but also bravo to you two for pulling this off because Jordan and I know firsthand <laughs> how difficult it is. What did you, What was your main duties in trying to bring this momentous piece of work to market?
0: Well, I'd say first of all, uh, we had a lot of help from a lot of really great people on this project, which is really the main reason that this all came together. Uh, one of the first of which I want to mention is Paige Ford connected us to a ton of really great writers in the community. She really helped us start to like put the bones of this project together. Um, a friend of ours, Josh Knapp, had the idea for the tavern, which we then expanded upon and built. Uh, Allo Clark is another writer that we brought in. That I met through my personal D and D game also really helped bring the tavern alive. If we hadn't had those people that were able to connect all those dots, I mean, I think that is truly what really made this thing come together.
3: I I would agree a thousand percent. I mean, we'd still be, you know, trying to make it, pulling our hair out, um, and it still seemed to take a really long time. You know, it's always
1: always takes ten times longer than you think it's gonna.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
1: So you've been working on this project for quite a while with some really talented writers. And I think it's fair to say that you've thought about taverns more than anyone I've ever spoken with. So with that, let's head over to the Strategy Stateroom to get your advice on how to build really good taverns.
0: This is the Strategy Stateroom, where inventive and cunning
3: tactics are crafted for when they're needed most.
2: So some of the steps that we're going to talk to Mike and Colin about today, we're going to start with creating a theme and values within your tavern, and then we're going to jump to three colorful NPCs as a foundation for who the wonderful folks
1: are that show up. Right, because otherwise it's just a shack Yeah, without NPCs. Then we're going to do getting invested in the tavern, how to draw the players in to what you've created. And then, of course, how to entertain them once they get there. And how to kick off some epic adventures from your tavern, because that is the point. So let's start
2: with, with the first. Let's talk about the theme of the tavern. Now, you guys created a theme around the circus, which is not the first place that I personally would end up, you know, I'm, I'm the, the dark and gritty DM. <laughs> I don't immediately go, let's, let's do big top. But how did you guys settle on that as a theme for your book? Uh, Yeah, I mean, honestly, I don't think I would have gone there myself either. That was uh,
0: our friend Josh Knapp. He had this concept of kind of like saying, like, what if the flying Walendas from the circus just (laughs) like decided to just drop everything, walk away and start a tavern? (laughs) Um, And that's kind of how the whole idea started. And then we had a rough idea for a few characters and I I think it just for me, because I wouldn't have gone there. I think it was interesting to try to challenge ourselves to step out of that comfort zone and do a location that I normally wouldn't have come up with. And I think a lot of the people that we kind of worked with wouldn't have come up with. So really I, Josh really kind of nailed it on that one. Like just by making us step out of what we were comfortable with.
3: Yeah, I would I would totally agree with Mike. It was a challenge. And the tavern totally started as this what if it's circus themed? Okay. And then, you know, it started to evolve and take shape. And circuses can be a plethora of like feelings and emotions. They can be like terrifying, you know, like you have the creepy, scary things jumping out at you. Clowns can be scary, not? Or they can be like whimsical and fun and you know, there's dark sides to them, but also it's, you know, you go to have a good time. So we kind of wanted not to cover everything, but it started to kind of write itself in in that sense, as far as like what we wanted to have in the tavern, you know, the characters that came into play and started to like take shape uh, as far as the NPCs go. So it, it was really fun.
0: And, and I think like, as far as if you're doing your own, I think that It is a great starting place to try to take a location that you normally wouldn't do and try to get out of that comfortable. This is kind of my theme, because I think you will be surprised with the ideas that you can come up with when you start to take that leap into an area that you normally wouldn't.
2: Well, I can definitely see the theme being that that core piece of, you know, what am I going to build this around? And like you said, you guys chose a theme that has some flexibility.
1: There's Absolutely. a lot of cultural things to draw from when it comes to circus. Yeah, that's a good point. It's very broad because I can see kind of like getting trapped in a very narrow theme.
2: I think having something kind of central to be remembered, like that is the, the main challenge for me when it comes to getting a tavern to stick with my players. How do I grab their attention? Another place to drink booze is not necessarily <laughs> the way to go. But if we had something that has a bit of memorability to it, and we've we've talked about this at length, about adding, you know, values to a particular place. So like this comes across in, especially in tavern tales, but something else to be remembered. So it's not just another roadside attraction. It's a circus themed tavern. You've got trapeze artists inside behind the bar. And that's like... That is so memorable because I've never seen that before in my life as a and D player, and I've been playing for a long time. But boy, I'll I'll remember that tavern. Let's go back to the circus tavern with the trapeze artists.
1: You you settled on the circus theme, but you had to have tossed around at least another idea or two, or at the very least played in games with some pretty wild tavern ideas. So,
3: as you know, as the resident experts on taverns now. <laughs> um, let me just say it's called Volume One for a reason. So we we had we kicked around. I would say almost a hundred ideas, you know, <laughs> um, and some of them were really bad. You know, <laughs> a lot of most of them were. You know, we had been talking to Josh, and this is years ago, and and we were kind of like, maybe we should go with this. So Mike, go ahead.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that just coming up with different ideas for taverns just gives you a library of stuff to go back to later too. I think we have some really other like close contenders that will probably be when we try to do a second one. Like one of the ones we've been tossing around is kind of like a, um, like crossroads type of story where you have a tavern that's all devils that are just there to make deals or people passing through. And like the whole theme is just, Maybe this tavern is not actually in a location, but sort of, you know, in this like hub world or something that you can only get to a certain way. A lot of ideas like that came out and it was like with this one, we wanted to play a little safe where it was like, don't go too far into the like fantastic for the first outing just because we want it to be accessible to a large number of tables and stuff like that. But I think that there's just so many different ways that you can go with this. And I think that it's kind of like you said, you always want to have a memorable piece to it. And that's what you have to like build the structure off of is whether it's memorable characters or memorable geography or something like that, or uh, one that I always thought would be interesting would be to do a tavern that's inside of the belly of a dragon
1: Heck yeah, or something
2: like that. Yeah. Very
1: cool. Monster corpses are great locations.
2: (laughs) Right. (laughs) (laughs) That's, and I think that you just touched on, you know, to me, what the core of this is, is that it doesn't have to be high concept. It doesn't have to be, you know, at the 50,000 foot mark. It can just be, here's a rib cage that we built a part of a tavern into.
3: Yeah. Um, No, I remember I had one, Idea that was really bad, and because it mainly just doesn't apply to the audience that well. But I was like, what if there was like sports in D and D? You know, what if there was like a sports bar? You know what I mean? No one's been in a sports bar tavern, and you know, Mike's just like, what the fuck are you talking? <laughs> <about>? <laughs> that was the worst idea ever. And I'm like, no, I'm gonna, I'm gonna
1: figure it out one day, and it's gonna be interesting. I'll, you know, so those duds can be great for a home game with the right audience. And I, I think that's a cool idea, but
3: no, absolutely. That That's what, you know, I was like, you know, I could, if I, if you brought that to a home table, you could really, really make that fun and interesting. And then who knows, maybe I go, wait, I really do like this. Let's make a book. <laughs> <You know.
0: laughs> uh, I, yeah. And I think that that's also an interesting thing to consider. Like if you're talking about at your home table, like you could really cater to what your players want. Like, like what he's talking about, like if that's, Maybe they have like something like some sort of Quidditch or whatever inside of your own personal world and you want to cater a tavern that kind of revolves around that or that sort of like maybe even like a kind of like soccer fandom, like that sort of thing inside of a fantasy world could be really great, especially if that's like what your personal
2: table is into. I, I think, again, we kind of just barely touched on it and Jordan and I harp on it all the time. In the podcast, but those values, if you know that your players have the value of righteousness, well, then you're going to throw in a cleric themed bar where it's inside of an old temple that has all of these gossamer curtains. And, you know, just like you can really lean into that theme where it's all about the just and the noble that gather there. And then as soon as you throw something that is, goes against some of those values. You have, you know, a, a a disheveled, dirty, angry, uh, mercenary for hire walk into that place. Now, now you, some shit's gonna
1: kick off, and we know that because we know what our values are. And of course, the Holy Tavern's gonna have monitors to watch the local Quidditch match on it. Yeah, <laughs> it's also a sports <laughs> scene. <laughs> yeah, uh-huh.
2: S- sports, <laughs> sports, devout religion. <laughs> yeah, that could be a thing. Sure, why not? Now we're <laughs> talking. <laughs> Let's move on to uh, step two, which is create those three colorful NPCs, and we just kind of threw out three because it's a nice, easy, round number. But let's talk about how you make a memorable NPC because tavern tales is is chalk full of wonderful NPCs that I actually like not my not my character, but me, <laughs> Travis the human, wants to hang out. With a whole bunch of fantasy NPCs like your
1: uh, half dragon Esteban. Yeah, Travis couldn't stop talking about Esteban.
0: Oh, he's one of my favorites as well. Because Esteban was actually my creation. and, And that to me was like, at least in my games, I never really have thought like, what is it like if you have a restaurant in this fantasy world where you have access to magic and you have access to all these fantastical things and like what if you have a character that literally can produce flame from their lips <laughs> <laughs> and if you, if that person was a chef like what would they be like and i think that was like that kind of thing is the sort of thing that you can kind of key into when you're trying to create these characters is like let me think about the world that we're in and try to find something that I haven't really explored in it before. And how is it different from our world, but how is it the same? And like, what kind of reflection of reality do we get in this fantasy world? And I'm like, well, if we have all these high class Michelin star chefs in our world, what does that look like in the fantasy world? Especially if it's somebody that has the means to cook, Inherent in who they are (laughs) in the form of being able to have
2: fire breath, like Gordon Ramsay's just a a hair short of that, but
0: right, right. And then I started to think, like, well, if you've got a guy with flame breath, you've also got characters with ice breath, and maybe they're making ice cream. (laughs) It just seemed like such a uh, funny but interesting way to create a character, and I think that that's like. At least for me, that's how I arrived there. I was was just like, what does this look like in this world compared to our world?
1: Well, I think that's really neat because you're basically taking modern, relatable elements because, you know, we've got all the taverns and bars that we frequent in real life and blending it with those wild magic fantasy stuff. And that creates something way more unique than just like, yeah, there's a tiefling in the
2: kitchen. He is cooking. (laughs) One thing that I will point out about your guys' work that I really appreciated, and I think really applies to trying to create those three memorable key NPCs that are going to be in your location, that are going to draw your players in, is having that, this is my character, but dot, dot, dot. And like, you know, if we're if we're going to still use Esteban as the example, he's got a, a pretty rich backstory, he's got a little bit of a hidden hidden thing that he's trying to keep on the on the down low like this is obviously a tavern that draws in all folks from all walks of life and like your players probably will like they're going to stick around this place it is just it's a magnet for all of these interesting characters so i think having that that character that has that dot 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 what else is interesting about this character on the surface they look like this but underneath, there's a little bit of mystery, and it's something to explore once you get there and once you start talking to some of these characters.
3: Yeah, I think that that really bounces off the idea of just selecting a theme for your tavern, even if it's, like you said, not a super highfalutin idea. You, that theme then kind of starts to draw these NPCs in, right? They start to take shape kind of based on how, how do they get there? You know, like who hired them? You know, and that's not things you need to tell your players, but it can shape who these NPCs are. Like, yeah, it's the tiefling in the kitchen who cooks, but you should, how they got there is insane. You know, like, they're, so like you said, those two things can work in conjunction really well together. Just picking a theme and then being like, wait a minute, who works here? You know, and how the heck did they get there?
1: Mm-hmm. Another element I really like about the NPCs in your guys' book is that you give them that really interesting backstory and then you make sure that they know the other NPCs and they have feelings about them and they have relationships with them and something that I think I'd like to get your thoughts on is how you arrived at the design choice because I really like it Um, at the end of a lot of your NPCs you have a GM tapestry options and it gives you uh, just a few really good points on like the essence of this character
0: uh, yeah, that was actually alo Clark, the writer that we brought in, that was one of his ideas. Um, and he kind of bounced it off of me and we workshopped that a little bit. And I was just like, you know, this is really great because it, when he came to me with the concept, it was sort of like, you know, we have all these elements that we know exist in all everybody's home games, like thieves guilds and, uh, like college bard colleges, things like that. So like, we know that if we create jumping off points from those key elements that we know are featured in a lot of different D and D stories, then we can give a DM a somewhat focused idea of something to do that can be different for literally every table. And that can be adaptable to any setting that you are already running. And I think that that is, um, something that in future works we want to expand upon even more because it was kind of a late addition to the book but I I think it makes a lot of sense and I think it's something that I haven't seen utilized a ton in a lot of published works that I've read and I'm kind of surprised like after he came to me with the idea because it was like one of those things that just like as soon as he said it to me it's like instantly clicked it's like yeah you have a ton of through lines through all of these different types of characters. And you just don't see it that
1: often. Right. So it's essentially short points that, that connect the NPC to potential characters, right? Is that the ens- essence of it?
0: Yeah. It'll be something like, you know, this character would have ties to some sort of organization, like organized crime element. So if you have an organized crime element uh, in your story, here are a few ways that you could implement this character's backstory into your pre-existing setting.
1: Yeah, so what I like about it is, right, you've got three points for Esteban that tie them into the world, but also those three points serve as a quick reminder of who the character is, because Esteban's are royalty, dragonborn, and gastronomy. And with those three, you almost begin to get a picture of this character in your mind. Like I was saying, surround yourself with great people Um, and Josh and
3: Paige, especially right from the beginning, um, kind of helped build this tavern team out. And Josh came up with a bunch of uh, NPCs in the beginning that Mike added to and Allo added to, and then they all kind of worked together. I think we cut some, we added some in later, you know, especially like Esteban's a perfect example. We were like, wait, who cooks the food? You know, and we were like, I remember, I think I remember Mike saying, does it matter? And, I was, and I, I was just like, I don't know, does it, you know? And the next day he's like, esta bon, you know, I, I got this great idea. And so, yeah, I don't think we went through as many as we did taverns, but. Uh, yeah,
0: really, uh, it actually was for the NPCs. The process really was we came up with the staff and the owner. And then that was basically it. Like, that's where kind of where we juggled around and had a few extras and messed around but as far as the other npcs uh we just said to the writers here's the tavern we gave them a document with uh everything that we had about the setting and all the characters and the people that work there and then we said each one of you we want to just design one npc if you want to make them a staff member you can if you want to make them just somebody that's a patron go ahead and then we would just approve that npc but I, i To be totally honest, I don't think there was a single one that they came back to us where we weren't like, this is, (laughs) they were all fantastic right from the start. And I I think that that was, I think that gets to a thing that uh, Dale Kingsmill says in the forward that she wrote for us. I think one of the reasons that a tavern worked so well is because it is a thing that we personally outside of our characters can relate to like, even if you're not somebody that's going to bars all the time, like it's so steeped in the culture, especially in like European and American culture. Like we know what a tavern or a pub looks like. It's a familiar area that exists in both of these places. So it creates this really easy location to understand at the beginning and then from there add the fantastic too and i mean i know i've been in enough bars and met enough characters in real (laughs) life that like it's not too hard to just put a little bit of a spin on somebody that you know from a bar in real life and make them a fantastical character
2: um let's talk about how to get players more invested once they get there they need something to do right
0: absolutely and i think that one of the the ways that we addressed it was by uh, a couple of things we gave a bunch of tavern games for them to play which could be a reason like ways for them to spend some of their off time between adventuring and if they want to just make some coin or just uh, meet some of the characters around the tavern i think that's a great way to do it and we also did it with shops giving your characters any sort of personal investment whether that is like a personal tie to one of the patrons or owner or whether it's some sort of physical tie like we did with the shop you invite a lot of opportunity for the players to want to go back there
2: so how did you do that with shops you've got shops outside the the big top players can go and and buy stuff but then you also have a way that you can invest there
0: if you've got a place that people are traveling through all the time if you were to give merchants a place to set up outside of there, you just have all these cycling different merchants coming through all the time. And then if the players themselves wanted to participate in that, like why wouldn't they be able to? So I said, you know, here's flip flip owns the tavern. So flip has a way to rent a stall. And then from there, we just kind of built a set of rules on how to open up your own kind of storefront out there in front of the tavern. And one of the things that kind of brought that to my attention is, I don't know about you guys, but I feel like a lot of times we're wandering around in dungeons or we're wandering around on our adventures and we're picking up crap that we're (laughs) like, what am I going to do with this candelabra
1: that I just picked up? Or Or even does anybody use a mace? Yeah, right.
0: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I'm just going to toss it into my pack and it's going to be a thing that I'm carrying around unrealistically in a gigantic backpack that has 150 different items in it. Why not give players a place to take all that junk? Put it on an auction block and say maybe somebody's going to come and buy this stuff that's not me. And that was kind of the impetus of creating the shops was to kind of give the players a way to cycle that extra stuff that you find out adventures that you don't really have a use for and then with The alternating merchants a way to give a little bit more meaning to money in the game because it's so rare that like at least in my games like gold (laughs) eventually kind of just becomes meaningless um so if you can have some interesting different shopkeepers i think we did some stuff with like poisons and stuff like that or different potions and stuff that you can buy just a little bit more interesting than just having a DM have to come up with a random general goods vendor every time. So we gave a bunch of different options for different um, types of shops that you could have there and cycle out whenever you want.
1: Yeah, that's kind of neat because then what I always find is the problem with like one general shopkeeper is it's wildly unrealistic for them to have access to some of the magic items that either the characters are wanting or just like a good enough selection to appeal to everybody. But if you're doing that, you can have as many vendors as you want. And they've all got their specialties, and and yeah, it makes a lot more sense that one of them has this wicked legendary weapon that your character's been eyeing up, and maybe you'll be able to catch them on their next time through if you save up enough from selling all <laughs> your junk. But yeah, I, I I can understand the appeal to that system.
3: Yeah, it's a it's a it's a really fun addition. Um that that Mike came up with, and I think it does a good job to keep the tavern fresh, especially out front. You know, it's like, Flip's like, yeah, I have all these old tavern, these old circus tents, like, oh, yeah, I'll just pop them up, and then I'll rent out some stalls, boom, extra cash, you know, because, yeah, Flip's, you know, they're this friendly person, you know, the, the tavern owner and all that, but they're also, they're in it for the money, too, you know, so they're opening up these stalls, and maybe one time you see one thing, and then you come back, and you, your DM's like... OK, and not in front of you, you see four new shop owners and an ar- a plethora of new items and goods to buy.
2: And so it's like, well, there goes two hours. You know, your players <laughs> are immediately sucked into. Secondarily, as a DM, I find it really difficult sometimes to shoehorn some magical item, like you said, Jordan, into the into the narrative. How the hell did you come across this drift globe? Do I just do I put it inside a chest somewhere in a dungeon? Do like who is selling this? Now if you have a new idea for something some magical weapon to give your monk, it just happens to be right there. And hey, you know, you look like a a, a fellow that uses his fists come on over, I've got something exactly for you. Well, yeah, it's exactly for you because the DM has been trying to give it to you for six (laughs) sessions,
1: Um, but here it is at the stall. And I also really like that it's a way to cycle through all of my dead NPCs that I'm not sure (laughs) if the players will (laughs) like or not. And they've got an exit, or if they like them, then I can, you know, pepper them in more.
0: Yeah, I think that also like kind of what you're saying is like as a DM, it provides you because you establish that these are traveling merchants and there might not always be the same person there. The next time when you come back to the tavern, it kind of obscures DM Fiat. Like, because now, like you said, I can place that item there and it's not just incredibly unbelievable that we just came across it because we've established that there's all these traveling merchants and maybe this just happens to pass through at the right moment for you. And that's much easier to swallow as a player and doesn't really break the fourth wall as much as it would if it's just like, "Oh, you just conveniently came across this at the right moment,
2: yeah, the having that investment has another effect that I am really interested to try out, um and it's one of those ones that i've I've seen play it out in other scenarios, but this is so perfect for it, and it's that personal stakes in the in that fiction in that world, because if I were to tell my players. Um, you guys need to go stop the big, bad, evil person. Um, they're going to destroy the world. I there. There's a 50% chance I don't get bites on that. But if I say, <laughs> hey, uh, you know the shop that you own near the tavern? Well, some dude and his crew just came through there and they spat on the person that you have running your stall and they knocked over your stuff. They didn't even hurt anything. They didn't take anything. <laughs> they just kicked your table well, now that bastard's going to die. And I know my I players like are going to bite that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I enter rage.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think there's a lot of really great opportunity with that kind of thing. One of the ones that I thought of, too, was like, what if your shopkeeper that you hired decides to clean out the stall and just disappear? Like,
1: <laughs> oh, now yeah, you've yes. just got
0: your own little quest <laughs> that maybe the heroes are going to be like. We can't let them get away with that. We got to track them down. And now you have a whole other quest line just from that small element. I think there's so many interesting things that a dungeon master can do if you get your characters invested in like the ownership of a piece of this business or, you know, even something as simple as like flip seeing that you're making a bunch of money and deciding to raise rent on you. Like that can create an interesting, like, Social encounter type of thing for your players that are more interested in the role play and like negotiation aspect of it. I think there's a lot of opportunity there for your players to be manipulated by their interest in the business. I think it's a good way to work um, them into the game
3: flip at, in terms of maybe they give you some opportunities or some hints at opportunities, and all of a sudden, oh, maybe I should be a little mushy with them. And then Hey, you want to unload some of those weapons? Have I got the opportunity
1: for you, you know what I mean? Like and then money all of a sudden money means something again in your game. So those are things that w- we can sink our teeth into because we understand them so much more than the fantasy stop the big bad evil from dominating the world. Yeah,
0: you know, that's actually kind of a thing that um the other project that Colin and I are working on is um a Wild West role playing game. And we ran, it, we ran it a bunch at Gen Con and one of the interesting things that we noticed from that that I've actually tried to carry into my D&D games a little bit is that people fell really easy, easily into those characters because they had a much easier time understanding who those people were in the world than they do with a fantastical character. And I think that kind of opened up my eyes to the fact that especially for people that are for new players and people just getting to uh, into role playing and stuff, if you can give them something familiar to the real world to help build their character off of, I think it makes it an easier time for them to fall into that character or to get invested into that world. Um, I think those are really easy ways to make your world seem more real as if they can have a connection to something that, they truly understand as people, and that's something that can be really hard in fantasy.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I agree. We have a particular player in one of our games that's pretty talented at that. A quick fun example is his uh warlock that treated his deal with his patron as a um what would you call that, Travis? Like
2: a multi-level scam.
1: <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but I mean, i I think your your point is really solid. And, you know, for new players, it's why so many new players, their first character is Gimli or Legolas reskinned mm-hmm. because it's a familiar starting point. Like it's a it's a jumping off point that they recognize and they feel comfortable with. Another way to have new players or familiar players kind of come to this level of comfort that I think you've done really well in the book is with mini games. I'd really like to take a a few minutes and just discuss some of the mini games and what function they have within the actual gameplay.
3: You know, some DMs take them, some DMs leave them. Um, Some people don't want to get caught up in something like that. A lot of players love them. Um, And it's a really good and relatively easy way to really enrich a location and to make it feel like it has some real depth in your world rather than just, oh, there's some uh some there's a orc and a human playing cards in the corner and it's like okay i don't care you know what i mean yeah instead of oh there's someone hitting the strength competition bell and they almost got it to the top and they handed the hammer to the player behind them and that's like oh i'm going to i'm the strong barbarian like i'm going to show them you know what i mean boom you're right into the world you're right into that space that you've now created by providing something as simple as like an old circus game so I really think mini games are great to have, even if
0: you don't use them. Yeah. For us with a published work, it's a little tougher because you don't know the party count, but if you're building your game at home, lean into the skills of your party. You know what they like to do. And if you want easy ways to invest them in entertainment ideas or Games or any sort of like chance games or skill based games, look at your players and look at how they play their characters and try to build games that jump off of stuff that they're already doing because then they will instantly lock onto those things because you know that that's what they like to do. And it really can be as simple as just what is a skill that this character constantly falls back on? Are they always doing acrobatics? well, let's create something that is acrobatics-based that can draw them in as a side activity.
1: Yeah. Something you touched on there, Colin, that I think is really powerful with these mini-games and what we've talked about so far is like, you could take those NPCs that have threatened your character's investment and put them on the strength bell. Those people that your characters already hate, now the barbarian's definitely going to do it and you've got yourself uh, (laughs) a pretty epic moment out of a mini-game
3: absolutely yeah and then all of a sudden someone accuses someone else of cheating and who knows what happens next you know? Yeah. we know what
2: happens next <laughs> yeah. the yeah. tavern burns down That's what happens. <laughs> yes but i think this is also a really cool opportunity to sh- let your players flex a little bit as well um because like for me this is something that i learned a while back as a dm is that My players get humbled by the dragon that they find out in the Dragon's Lair. When they go looking for trouble, that's when they get their asses handed to them. They get really challenged. But coming back to this tavern, like they're adventurers. They're out there. They're level 15 adventurers. They're coming back to a tavern. They're going to spank the local talent (laughs) when it comes to. And this is a really cool opportunity to just let them flex. Let them be heroes. And let them mop the floor within whatever tavern games. And like you said, you lean into their skills and abilities. And you're like, you got somebody with a 21 strength? Well, you make that strength bell. Um, you know, you make it a... It, it could happen that they get beat, but it's not likely. Because they're playing against Farmer John, um, who's just got a lot of talk. <laughs> the The final point here is how to kick off an adventure. And... You guys have done this in your supplement in such a wonderful way because underneath it all, this is a location and characters mixed with full on
1: fleshed out adventures. Yeah, Yeah.
2: like you've got all of these thoroughly planned. You got maps, you got all kinds of stuff. You guys had to kick off, find ways of kicking off the adventure so many times within your own tavern. Uh, What are your thoughts on how to best kick off an adventure for players?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think, again, that's another thing that as a, a DM with your personal players, you, you know how to do it because it's always, you know, your players so well that you just need to lean into the things that you see them get drawn to. um, And then for us with the book, it was like, make a really compelling character that they want to approach. And then from there, give them something that is going to either like pull on the heartstrings of a character, tease them with some sort of monetary or magical item gain, or just have them look at this situation and be like, this is bizarre. I have to see how this plays out. Um, Kind of that one, I think kind of is like, we have a character that's just a crow that's in their rafters. And that's like one of those ones that I think is just like, if you just keep mentioning that your players are going to be like, hey, what's up with this?" Yeah.
3: I really like the rumors that um, align with every adventure and you know, that once again acts alongside us all kind of knowing what a bar, a pub, a tavern really is in the real world. It's it's a it's a gathering, especially in smaller towns, uh, you know, or even in cities. It's a gathering of your local community, your local neighborhood, and you kind of hear stuff and people talk. And so you have these rumors kind of popping up and they could be from, like you said, Farmer John. You know, Farmer John said, you know, there's an overgrown tower over there that time is supposedly stopping or something. You know, there's animals going in there and, and leaving, you know, fully grown and, and whatnot. And and that's like, you know, you just dangling that string in front of your players. You're like, come on, go on. You know, you want to pull it.
1: You know what I mean? <laughs> I think I noticed in that design that you're talking about, what was really cool was that you created NPC specific rumors. So like the mixologist is going to know things related to their background about that, that tower. They're going to know that maybe there's a secret stash of, of very tasty chemicals in there, but somebody else is going to know something else about it.
0: Yeah. that. Then I think that was like one of the things that I conceptualized sort of with the rumors is like, if you just have, I think we did like four for each one um because of the communal nature of the tavern like you're saying for the dm they can take that one rumor take that rumor and look at it from the perspective of all these different established characters in the tavern and what do they think of this what are they going to tell your party and i think that's something that you can easily implement in your home games is just take one idea and play telephone with it yeah you know and that's yeah. in a social setting it's very easy for that to happen And like Colin was saying, like, that's that was just, again, from like my experience in bars is if you just sit and listen, you'll hear a million different stories about a million different things. And that was one of the things that I wanted to have in this tavern to make it feel more legitimate, because, you know, there's just going to be people talking everywhere.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I think we've we've talked about taverns. Let's talk about your specific tavern. And to do that, let's hop over to the hero stage.
0: This is the hero stage where fantastic folk have a spotlight turned to them to tell the tales of their adventurous lives.
2: Alright, so we're gonna talk a lot more about Mike and Collins actual product, uh, which is Tavern Tales Volume One. And man, the, the tease of additional Tavern <laughs> Tales is so good. Uh I'm I'm super excited to see what you guys tackle next. Um, but obviously, like we've been kind of talking about through this whole episode um and kind of skirting around, we're talking about a trip away tavern, uh, which is the the core focus of this entire You know, it's the it's the the gathering place for adventures, the the place for things to kick off. But what I'd like to really highlight is the incredible contributors that you guys had as a part of this project. Like you had uh, Paige Ford, who worked on Uncaged, the the other like really this no other anthology popped off like Uncaged did.
1: And, you know, a lot of that was was Paige's writing you got Mackenzie DeArmas, who also worked on MCDM's Kingdoms and Warfare. Then you've also got Lynn Meyer,
2: who's a three-time Any nominee and writer on Uncaged. Like,
1: the pedigree. We We can keep going on. And Jessica Markram, another Uncaged writer and Silver Any winner. You guys gathered so much incredible talent. How how did you go about <laughs> attracting all of these
2: incredibly talented writers and, and game designers to your project?
0: Uh, well, Paige Ford uh, is actually a personal friend of ours. We all work together in the uh, film business. Uh, and Paige, I have the honor of being Paige's first DM. And then through her experiences, uh, she introduced us to a lot of the people that contributed. She was really the key to opening that door to a lot of these writers for us. And then uh, as far as the rest of them, we kind of drew upon some of our personal friends. Uh, We're also lucky enough to have some really talented writer friends that just wanted to take a stab at writing stuff. And it really all just came together really well. But I I'd say we can't thank Paige enough for opening that door because she really was the one that introduced us to so many of these already established community writers. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, she, she killed it, um,
3: right from the very beginning and introduced all those people. I just want to shout out Josh, who we've been talking about Josh Knapp. He's got his own website. Um, he's now a celebrity DM in his own right. And, uh, you could find more about that uh from him he's got a website what is it it's thedeepmagics.com but yeah uh like Mike said Paige really introduced us to the the awesome array of talent that appears in this book.
2: And and this so. is not an exhaustive list. Like we're we're talking about a couple of the 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 folks that worked on other very very popular anthologies but like the the talent that you guys brought together the entire list of talent is just incredible like when you read through who wrote uh, that book you're just like I know them and them and them and them and I'm a fan of them like it's just it's incredible so bravo to to you both
0: I do also want to say just for those of you that might be thinking about doing projects like this <laughs> um some of them were really just like this is my wish list and I'm just gonna reach out to this person and see if they'll be interested. Like, um Kaylee Bray is a great example. Like I was familiar with Kaylee from her damsels dice and everything nice uh podcast, and also from seeing her DM some stuff. And I just was like, we had a stretch goal writer that we needed, and I was just like, Well, let me just try to get a hold of her. And I I uh contacted her through her like business email and she was interested so like if if that's if you're trying to do a project like this don't be afraid to try to approach some of those people that you might not think you'll be able to get because they may see what you're doing and think that it's cool and wanna be involved
2: well and you also stretched yourself across the the kind of talent that has already been established and is doing really amazing work in the industry but then you also you know, like you said, you gave a shot to those those folks that maybe haven't quite made it, but had an interest in writing. And I think that's also the, the big takeaway here is just do it. Like you just <laughs> you got to find the folks that that are around you. And you guys, like you said, had page forward around you. Um, and that's that's amazing. But like use the people that are that are nearby and that, you know, the worst thing you can do is give it a shot.
0: <laughs> yeah. Kind of though what you were just saying also, I think probably the single biggest piece of advice that I can give to creators out there is just do it because there were so many times that we were like, is this really going to work? Are we going to be able to do this? And you just have to push through and make the project happen. And I promise if you do, it will be worth it to you in the end because just manifesting something into existence is so hard. (laughs) And it feels so good to get it done.
2: I I can only imagine. And that's, you know, before before we started recording, we were talking a little, little bit about that, about how you guys kind of came into this without having, you, you didn't know the path before you started walking it. Um, so, you know, you, you just take each one of those challenges one step at a time and you overcome them and. I mean, talk about an emotional roller coaster. It's the same one that Jordan and I have had with this podcast, but, you know, it's, it's worth it in the end.
1: Oh, yeah. When you start something like that, a creative venture that you have no idea where it's going to land, it's just like there's definitely the doubtful thoughts of what am I doing with my <laughs> time? I'm investing so much into this. I mean, I think we hit that,
0: honestly, probably hit that moment multiple times, <laughs> you know. You hit, you hit setbacks and unforeseen things so many times that it's just like, there's so many discouraging moments that you have to push through, but it's just so worth it once you do, because especially with, if you're doing something that you have never done before, like there was just, we didn't know, like Colin had never done a layout before in his life and just decided to do an RPG book. I mean, (laughs) You can talk about what that was like. How many times did that make you want to quit while you were doing that? Oh my God. Um, man, you make me sound like a real infant. I do. I (laughs) I
3: have a little bit of a a graphic design background. Um, so I, you know, I knew, you know, Photoshop and InDesign uh, fairly well. And, but Mike's right. I'd never, I'd never laid a book out. I maybe laid a brochure out once back when I was trying to make money in college, but Yeah, putting a 300-page book together had its fair share of challenges every day. And I'd say one of the ones that I didn't expect was explaining it to people. Mm. (laughs) Explaining, what are you doing right now? You know, because we (laughs) we quit our jobs in the film industry to make this happen, basically. And um, telling, you know, my mom and my dad several times, well, I'm laying this book out, you know, and it's for Dungeons & Dragons. Oh, you're writing Dungeons & Dragons? I thought that was already a book, you know? And it's just like, (laughs) but yeah, so it came with, you know, a billion challenges. Adobe crashed about 14 times a day. Um, just learning everything, making that mistake, learning from the mistake, starting back from square one, and then you get to step two. And, you know, and then you make that mistake and you go back to one and then you make it to step three. That was really rinse and repeat challenge for us. And that's why everything took so long. And, and but the reward at the end, like we have delivered to the printer, You know, I have washed my hands of (laughs) other than updating the PDF and stuff like that and keeping up with the project. We have completed such a momentous book. Like when we got the hardcover PPC test copy, I was almost in tears. It was such a thing of beauty and everything looked exactly how I'd envisioned it in the program. And it was just such a moment of joy. So, yeah, my words of advice, if you're you're thinking about doing something like this, know it's going to be a bear. Multiply how long you think it's going to be by about 20. (laughs) You know, the amount of work you're going to have to put in and just be ready to challenge yourself
0: and be willing to take on those challenges. Another thing I want to say is like, Colin said that we did leave our jobs in the film business, but like a good chunk of this book we were doing while we were still working Mm. full-time on TV shows and stuff. So I know that creators out there, I know it seems like a lot and it's tough to like, give up those extra hours every day but again like the fulfillment that you get from doing it is just so worth it at the end i promise it is
2: well what strikes me about your guys's work in particular and and everyone's work on this book is just how genuine a place it comes from and i think that's that's a really big motivation for for us on the podcast and just in general, is do it because you you can't not do it. We're going to do it for the right reasons. We're going to try and improve the community. We're going to try and put something out there. You guys saw this opportunity to make a, a supplement that's never been made before. And and that's what I love about it is that it is unique. It's it's something different. It It's taken a different angle on the traditional adventure book. And, you know, you, you've created something really, really wonderful and really unique.
3: It's really rewarding to hear stuff like that, too, after you, you know, pour your blood, sweat and tears into something for two <laughs> years and, you know, work part
2: time jobs. And it's not a
3: very lucrative business. I'll tell you that.
2: <laughs> well, I think the, you know, the the love and passion that you guys have for it really sh- shows through, especially when you get, you know, the kind of response that you got on Kickstarter, like you nearly tripled your budget. How
1: was that little journey? The Kickstarter um, <laughs> <laughs> approach.
0: That was uh, probably one of the scariest things that we've ever done because it was kind of that moment of like, is anybody going to care? We've what gone because yeah. we had did a, a good portion of the book was finished when we went to Kickstarter. Like, I'd say probably three layout aside, content wise, probably 90% of the book was done at that point.
3: Yeah, a lot of hours, a lot of money, a lot of money spent on art just mike and i were like well let's let's invest and maybe we'll make some of it back and yeah um so it was it was really tough uh the kickstarter mike why don't you tell them uh, about how you ripped off the kickstarter band-aid why don't you tell them that story
0: well <laughs> uh, yeah oh yeah I, I i accidentally launched the kickstarter early because of a little time zone mix-up uh <laughs> we we got to uh you know, we met like about an hour and a half before we were supposed to launch the Kickstarter. And then Colin's like, I just got an email that says the Kickstarter is live. And I'm like, (laughs) Oh no. (laughs) So we just started like frantically emailing everybody. Like, We had all these plans set up for how we were going to do the launch. And then it was just like, go, 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 go. Which Months. months Hilarious. Hilarious as it was. I think it was kind of like maybe a boon in the end because like we couldn't really get in our heads about it. It was just like all of a sudden like band-aids off. We got to go. Hopefully this happens. You,
2: Leroy um,
1: Jenkins, your own Kickstarter. Yeah,
0: a hundred percent my fault.
1: Uh, <laughs> you, you got dropped into the adventure. <laughs> yep. Yep. Wow. Uh, yeah. Probably be... one
0: of the one of the most stressful, but then amazing days. By the end, you know, you never think you're gonna hit the goal. Maybe in the first, you know, you're hoping within the the length of the campaign, but to hit it in the first day was just like that was so incredible to not have to like, we're like that day one. We're like, we're making a book.
2: Yeah. That's so uh, cool. And to,
0: to be able to have that off of our shoulders was so great.
2: <laughs> well, uh, one of the other things that I really wanted to point out um, and draw attention to in this book, you know, um, Colin, the guy behind all of the layout and putting this together, I don't know whose idea it was, but I'm in love with it. And that's the iconography that you use throughout the adventure. And this is one of those things I've I've got a lot of opinions and they're just kind of roiling inside and they're just festering and making me angry all the time. And one of them is adventure layouts. Uh, and, you know, as a DM, I'm just wondering, why do we keep doing stuff the exact same way? Why don't we ever try something new or try to make it easier for when you're actually running the game as opposed to just planning the game? And you guys solved a lot of my challenges with how adventures are laid out with this iconography system that essentially just reminds you as a DM, Hey, there's a trap here. Hey, there's a, there's a, a, there's, you know, treasure here. Where, where did that come from? And you know, who somebody needs to step up and take credit for that iconography system. (laughs) Well, how much time do you have? (laughs) Um,
3: no i I think that kind of came from uh, like I think I was telling you before we started recording, but Mike and I have work have a really good working relationship because he is like the mega d and d nerd the the that that um you know has so much history and d and d has been playing it for nearly triple the time I have and knows every company and every, you know when we go to conventions he's the expert you know he knows the who's who and the what's what and I kind of came and formed this company with the like i'm super interested in making games. And I also am interested in making them happen, and and looking at them from a, almost an outsider's perspective or a more objective viewpoint. You know, without all this experience in in playing them and experiencing them, like you said, every adventure looks the exact same. <laughs> you know, it looks the exact same, even when you go on. You know, what is it, DMs Guild or Drive Through RPG? It's almost like people are getting these templates and just like handing them out in community. I don't even know where they're getting them. I tried to find those templates to like, <laughs> I was like, how is everyone making the exact same thing? And so I don't, I think we kind of came up with it together, but you know, I was like, what if you could literally flip through an adventure and be like, Oh yeah, that's the loot I'm talking about. That's what I need to find. You know, that was right near that artwork and boom, there's the loot symbol. And there's like, what if you could just subconsciously, know where the stuff was. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really wanted it to make the job of the DM easier. And I wanted people to be able to go, wait, where does that character say that line again that I have to read out loud? Even if you don't want to read it out loud, we obviously want you to know that it's an important part of that adventure that the writer intended you to read out loud, right? You know, if that character dies beforehand, great. But all these things, like you said, locks and traps, and we wanted to coordinate them on the maps um, they should just be easier to find, man. Like <laughs> why aren't they, you know, why are they buried in checks and text and stuff like that? And I don't know if other people have done this, but I really like uh, made the decision to bold all the checks in the text. I don't know how common that is. I mean, I read a fair bit of adventures to, especially to get used to laying out this huge book, but stuff like that just didn't, why isn't stuff pop out at you? Why yeah. isn't stuff easy? Why isn't it intuitive and stuff like that? And and especially with the, the stat blocks, you know, I didn't want to want to reinvent the wheel with the stat blocks, but like, why are they just <laughs> a literal block of text? <laughs> you know, they should have some, some indicators that make it a little easier. So we tried to add stuff like that in that was like, Oh, that's that boom. I'm not flipping through the whole adventure, reading two paragraphs while I have five people staring at me eating popcorn. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, Keep the gameplay moving. That's the, you know, you read the Dungeon Master's Guide. The first rule is keep the game moving. Yeah. You know, so that was the goal.
0: A lot of this came to be because of the fact that um, Colin was separated enough from the traditional way that things were laid out. It my, well, actually, to be totally honest, my knee jerk reaction usually was like, that's how it is. So that's how we're going to do it. And Tradition. Colin my would boy. come back and be like, yeah, but like, really why is this like this? Is it really helpful? And then eventually he got to the point where he wore me down. Cause I was being stubborn and stuck <laughs> in the old school D and D ways. And I would go, you know what? This doesn't make sense. Like, why can't we like, so what if it doesn't look like a wizards of the coast text, if we can make it better. Yeah. And he had the idea for these icons and I was like, yeah, I mean, like for me as a dungeon master, this makes this text, so much more functional at the table than any of the, a lot of the other adventure books that I look at, because I know my biggest frustration is flipping pages to try to find some tiny piece of information on the fly. And I think that a lot of what he did helped that out. And I actually think the stat blocks are also, there's subtle changes to the stat blocks that make things easily accessible quickly, like armor class hit points making those obvious elements of the stat block that you can find really quickly, I think were also really good changes. And I think all that was born out of being able to look at it with unbiased eyes because he wasn't so exposed to all of that stuff.
1: And just so that it's very understandable what we're talking about, the icons that, that Colin created and you guys worked in there's visual icons for dialogue, visual descriptions in-game mechanics traps locks loot possible combats uh documents and text in universe and secret doors like to be able to just look at the page and know where those are is. i
2: don't know how many times i've been like where the hell is that fucking entrance to the secret door because there's two different areas you can access it and then it's it's hidden within some big paragraph of text unbolded unitalicized just (laughs) hidden there as secret as the door is itself yeah it's just like god damn it
1: Um, yeah it's
0: one of those things like you're gonna read in even if you read an adventure a thousand times you're not gonna commit all of it to memory most of us are not gonna be able to do that
1: yeah
2: ultimately it's a reference book you know you know you're gonna read through it once but then you have to be able to reference it at the table just just a brilliant uh, I, I really hope that it is adopted more widely in the industry because I think you guys are onto something really awesome.
1: Uh, and we talked about a lot of the elements of the book already, but some other things that I just want to mention because they're really fun. I mean, yeah, we mentioned the unique NPCs. They've all been fleshed out very well. You've got character backgrounds and subclasses. Like, I'm definitely going to make a clown background because of their very fun feature, having advantage on intimidation when in full clown costume. (laughs) Hell yes. So perfect. Beautiful detail. You've got unique magic
2: items that are themed to your adventures and and to the the circus... uh... You know, Circus Inspiration, you got Shady Dealers.
1: You have the (laughs) ability to become a Shady Dealer yourself. And one of my absolute favorite things, well, I mean, you've also got the full menu, which is pretty pretty wicked.
2: What a cool Kickstarter, uh, you know, bonus add-on, which is like a menu that you can put down in front of your players. Are those going to be available via your website? Like, are you able to buy the menus or was that a Kickstarter exclusive?
0: It is, it was Kind of a Kickstarter exclusive. We have a certain number of them, and we don't plan on reprinting them once we of them. So they are kind of limited edition, uh, <laughs> if you can get them. Very good. Uh, and we had some really talented people actually come up with the recipes for us. Um, we have Colin's friend as a chef. He did some of the recipes. We have another friend who is just opened her own bakery, but I, she was a former uh, Sci-Fi Channel Face Off visual effects artist. That she won, uh, one of the seasons of Face Off. Dina Simarusti. She, uh, did a bunch of the recipes as well. She ho-
1: owns a bakery now. If she left <laughs> the film business and owns a bakery, written by chefs and bakers, love it. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> and then my favorite thing that all good supplements have to be able to do, and yours does it really well. All of it's usable as a whole, and every little bit you can use in bits and pieces for your own games. Yeah. Absolutely. Like you can you can take this and and just run it and run
2: the entire thing. But I think like we've talked about in this whole episode, there are so many useful ideas and and inspirations for so many things for games. Even if you're not going to run it as like a circus themed tavern, there is so much there that is useful and that you can just rubber stamp onto your own world and onto your own ideas. You can draw all of these characters into your own world. Like there's not a single bit of this that isn't incredibly helpful in just kind of lowering the amount of prep that you have to do before a game. So uh, yeah, it's it's one of my favorite supplements that I think I've ever had the, the pleasure of
1: flipping through. And you guys mentioned your other product that you have right now which is live and die in the west which is a rule set for your own game right
0: yeah we're still sort of play testing that um but that was how the company actually formed was Colin and i started working on this wild west game which is we will eventually go to a kickstarter for like a core book release for that but right now you can get uh, a free rule set off of our website it like mike was saying
3: w- you know way back when it, it's it's you drop people into uh, a southern draw and they are in the game like that. You know it is. You know I walk into the tavern and I pull out my six shooter. You know and it's the game is you're already role playing before you even you know. So it's that was one of the first things we found out about making that RPG. And then the next thing was, no one's gonna buy an RPG from a company who who's never made anything before. So it was you know and let's it also needed a lot more time in, in the you know metaphorical oven just to get the rules worked out and we've redesigned the rules probably four or five times now just to really make them, you know, clean and playable and speed up the gameplay and stuff. So you can get the free rule set on our website.
2: And I think that's the, the thing that jumped out to me is that it didn't seem like a heavy lift to, to get into it. So we'll definitely be giving that a try ourselves. Um, but it was one of those ones that, you know, that's always what stops me from Trying out a new rule set is—I have to clear out space in this crowded attic that is my own brain. Uh, I don't have time for complex rule sets, and this one uh, seemed very, very approachable. So I'm excited to dive into it a little bit more. Yeah, I would be really interested to hear what you think. Well, you can find uh, all of Colin and Mike's work at eplangames.com, uh, and that's also eplan games on Facebook and eplan games on Twitter. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and you can find the rule set to live and die in the West at to live and die in the west dot com. They made it pretty easy for you. It's a good thing those domains were available, huh? <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> Thanks very much to the patrons that make episodes like this possible. Thanks to Gar the Pirate, Time Warp, Nika Y, Zach G, No Ma'am, Michelle T, Hentenius, Alan E,
2: Matthew T, Felix R, Chris F, the Senate, Lucas D, Lila G, the GM Tim, Thomas W. Tyler G. Tyann. Heavy Arms. Eric R. Aldross. Leprechaun. And Will HP. Thank you guys all so much. We really appreciate the support. Thanks to
1: Tabletop Audio for the sound effects you heard in the episode. You can follow us at Hook and Chance on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Reddit. You can join an excellent community of players and DMs, always trying to make your games better as well, on our Discord. And thanks, thanks, for, for, listening. thanks for listening. And play, listening. And play great, great Play great games. Play great games.
2: Great game. Perfect.